Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In today's episode, we welcome special guest animation director Felix Massey. Hello again, everyone. Happy April. This is Ben Mitchell, a little more compass than in the last episode. I'm joined by Steve Henderson, of course. Good day, Steve. Good day, Ben. How are you? I'm okay. I'm uh, very busy. Some quite exciting stuff on the horizon, some of which I'm sure the squiggly audience will get a kick out of when the time comes and all will be revealed soon. But in the meantime, I'm sort of enmeshed in preparation for it. But, you know, bringing it back to the here and now. Did you enjoy your Easter? I trust it was suitably eggy and rabbity or whatever else you uh, enjoy this time of year. It was. It was It was both eggy and rabbity, uh, and I did enjoy it. It was, it was great. I, uh, I didn't get many Easter eggs. I got, uh, I got a couple. I got one from my, uh, from, from my mum, and it was just a little one. And we were, we were out for coffee, and she gave me this little Easter egg. It's like a little token happy Easter thing. And I thought it was hollow. And so I smashed it to sort of share it with everyone. And it was filled with this kind of gooey cream. <laughs> it went everywhere. Yeah, no, it's always a good holiday if you have uh, cream dripping from you. Yeah. At the end of you the always day. want to spend your Easter like covered in chocolate. So I had the perfect Easter, Ben. Super, super. So refreshed and ready to continue with the world of animation podcasting, I trust. So yeah, it's been uh, the usual sort of amount of time since the last one. I'm... Uh, I'm a little uh, more lucid than before. Anomalisa has uh, been charming British audiences. I think it's uh, certainly from what I've been reading online. It's good to sort of get some insight from those guys in the last episode. And uh, now looking to the future, there are, of course, plenty of animated features uh, on the horizon, as well as, I suppose, the one that everyone is talking about fondly with the uh, interchangeable title. What the hell is it called here? We call it Zootropolis. I think we call it Zootropolis over here. Zootopia in America. Zoomania in Germany. Uh, oh, the Zoomanity. Zoophilia, probably, somewhere. <laughs> I, I would imagine so, Ben. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a weird one, isn't it? Um, because if you, look, if you look at that closely, the, uh, the Disney press team are saying, hey, we've, we've called it Zootropolis because that's for the English audiences. They want their own unique experience. Uh, apparently we wouldn't be able to understand what um, utopia is, but hey. Um, but if you look a little deeper, I think, um, was it the, there's, a, there's, there's a, an article in the Irish Times which explains that it's just a simple thing, that there's a, a zoo, a Danish zoo called Zootopia, and they've got the copyright to sell merchandise in the UK. Ah. That's it. That's it. But obviously Disney have to, to uh, put a spin on it. I mean, is it, because I've not seen the film, you, you have, but is it set in a utopia or is it set in a metropolis? Because <laughs> I kind of feel like from what I've seen, Zootropolis makes more sense as a title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question because uh, the, the premise is that the, the worlds of uh, carnivores and herbivores, they get along. So they're, they're, you, know, they're, you can see for that, uh, for that reason why they call it uh, why they could call it Zootopia or Utopia because they're not biting each other's heads off. Whereas uh, it is a metropolis. It's a metropolis and, and, and mix, a mix mash of all these different kind of uh, beasts that all come together and, and live together and uh, 
mimic uh, human society, really. And do they do it manically? Uh, <laughs> Just to accommodate the German? Yeah, uh, there is there is a certain mania to it, yes. <laughs> there you go. So I guess it, it, all three of them yeah. work perfectly well. It is a weird thing with the other, the, the sort of title semantics and copyright stuff. And one of the big confusions of my youth was, because, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you're a lot more literal, I guess, about things. Uh-huh. Why would they call the uh, animated Ghostbusters the real Ghostbusters and not call the real live action movie the real Ghostbusters? Because, you know, it would that it, it seemed to make a lot more sense the other way around. Mm. And then eventually found out the answer to that, and it's not interesting at all. Um, but there were, like, other Ghostbusters in, like, the 70s. It was a completely different property. And I don't know if this would be allowed to fly, like, now, but basically that kind of answer when the original guys were like, hey, excuse me, we actually kind of have this title for our thing. This was just to be like, oh, okay. Or which one was more... Um, successful which one's based on a huge international hit is it yours or is it ours no interesting that so they become the real ghostbusters in this sort of passive aggressive like you know which one do people actually care about Mm. your stupid one or our brilliant one (laughs) our legitimate one i never saw the original ghostbusters i have to say i saw like images of it i guess it was another cartoon Mm -hmm. i think I don't know exactly how similar the premise was, but I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know nowadays if you could actually do that kind of thing in the sort of state of our litigious society, if they released a movie like the better Zootopia. (laughs) (laughs) That would be be horrible for (laughs) the real Zootopia. Because of course the, the behemoth that is, uh, the Disney Empire. Yeah. I've always been very fond of that kind of notion. Of, remember the old South Park with the um, the Jonas Brothers? Yes. <laughs> and um, they're owned by Mickey Mouse. And when, they, <laughs> when they're trying to kind of, you know, revamp themselves or whatever, and Mickey Mouse comes in and just beats the shit out of them. <laughs> there's, there's the similar one, isn't there, with the Star Wars? That's the one I remember, because uh, the, the play him off as like, so Mickey's Darth Vader. But yeah, Zootropolis, Zootopia, Zoomania... Um, was uh, a great film. You should really go and see it. Also, what I'm quite looking forward to, although it's not going to be till next year, but it seems to be undoing a lot of the angst of this, um, I guess you'd call it a debacle, uh, Batman and Superman. <laughs> like, I haven't heard one positive thing about that film. Yeah. What will I, I think undo that wrong is this Lego Batman. Because oh. um, that looks very, very fun. It looks superb, doesn't it? And I kind of feel like it's sort of high time we get a version of Batman that isn't so f***ing po-faced. <laughs> and it's a tricky balance because the sort of late 80s version of Batman started kind of gothic. It's probably, it's quite goofy now, but like at the time it was quite dark and angsty. But then when Burton dropped out and it became like a bit too goofy mm. and a bit too neon. And then the last one they did, the George Clooney one. You know, as sort of, it's one of the most sort of notoriously bad movies ever made. I think is the general consensus. It is, but I think it still scores higher on Rotten Tomatoes than Batman versus Superman. Well, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah that 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 film has stunk the place up. <laughs> you got to be smug if you're uh, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I saw like a full trailer for that one, and what Wonder Woman's in it? Yeah. 
No, they're all in it. It's uh, you know, is it like an Avengers type thing? I've uh, you know, I've not seen it. I am gonna go see it. Um, I am. Uh, after all the the sterling endorsements. After well, you've you've got to, haven't you? It's like if you heard a car crashing outside your uh, outside your house, you can't <laughs> look, wouldn't you? Let me see if I can see any scattered limbs. Get a viral video out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna go see what the what the deal is. Okay, I uh, I I don't think I shall. Uh, but do do tell me if there's anything I should uh, I should check out. Yeah. But yeah, Lego Batman looks like a lot of fun. And I think that it's a good assortment of, of actors that they've sort of got together for it. Mm. I like that it has retained that look of the original Lego movie from yeah. a couple of years back. It's, you know, they they really hit on something there that works really well in like a film. It's sort of, especially kind of like the sort of meta comedy angle and that sort of thing. Yeah, the way he introduces the trailers as well is really, really funny. And I also kind of like the idea that the Batman's kind of a douche. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's yeah, it's got an awful lot of backlash. The Batman versus Superman film, but I there's an there's an article in the Telegraph uh, by a guy called Rhymer Rigby, and it and it's just a an absolute like uh, horrible attack on on comic culture. Like uh, it's, it's called "No Self Respecting Adult Should Buy Comics or Watch Superhero Movies," okay. and that's. A little bit harsh, if, you, if, if you're asking me. Um, although the comic book culture, the comic book uh, idea, can be seen as tired, and the multiplex world of cinemas is being held aloft by Iron Man and Captain America and Batman, Spider-Man, all these uh, superheroes is really keeping the whole thing going. This article is an absolute, just needless attack on comics culture. He has a go at the culture, he has a go at the comics, he has a go at the whole thing. Um, And then at the end, he says uh, that TV has really kind of realised that that we don't need the whole men in capes thing to be entertained. And then he cites um, series like The Wire, Breaking Bad, Narcos and Deutschland 83 are real hairs to all those great films from the 70s like Taxi Driver and Apocalypse Now. They're the popular culture people will remember in 30 years' time. Not some crossover film that started life as an Excel spreadsheet and an L.A. branding consultancy. I, I immediately picked up on that Breaking Bad thing. But isn't, isn't Breaking Bad quite close to a superhero thing? It's about a guy who leads a double life. I think it's easier for certain people to engage with that premise in that format because it's in the format of you know a world without um costumes and capes and mm. you know bright colors and things like that but no certainly uh, it is a it is a very similar premise and the the reasons for its appeal uh, there is a lot of overlap i can appreciate that it would drive someone nuts the the glut of comic culture and and see them you know write an article like this uh, I do think that there are different responses to comic culture, and I think that there are there are definitely extremes. Mm. And I think that, you know, in some instances, sometimes people get a little bit carried away with it and should maybe moderate that impulse. But that could apply to anything, you know? Mm. So it's, it, it, that's not limited to comic culture. It's just that the aesthetic of comic culture... I think has with it more kind of childish connotations, even though they are made more for adults now. 
as someone who isn't particularly engaged with comic culture, I don't think it's a particularly offensive thing. I just can choose to not watch it. Absolutely. You have that choice. And there's plenty of stuff that I, I do watch that would be considered part of that culture. I thought that that Deadpool film was great fun. You know? mm. There's a lot of sort of overlap as well with horror, animated films now, of course. Yeah. Uh, so I think that it's it can't be denied as a, a significant part of our culture. And I think that if someone has an attitude of like, well, you, know, you shouldn't watch a film like this or read a book like this if you're an adult with you know self-respect... There are going to be people who have that exact same attitude toward animated feature films, mm. be they Zootropolis or be they Anomalisa or something more perceivably socially important as a film, making a more impactful statement rather than just sort of frivolous entertainment. If it's animated, then, you know, it's not for me. Yeah. I'm above it. Do you remember the old Disney show uh, Dinosaurs, the animatronic puppets? Yes. Family. Yeah. Um, not the mama. Yeah. There's a wonderful scene in that. It's a scene with um, the dad dinosaur and the baby dinosaur. This was a family show. It wasn't really an adult show, but it was something that I, I'm sure parents could very happily have sat through. I certainly, if it if it's on, I usually will give it some time, not just for nostalgia, but also because it's very funny. And uh, the dad and the baby are watching a TV show. It's like a puppet show, but like really sort of crude, like sock puppets sort of compared to the actual puppetry of the characters of the show. And his wife comes in. He's like, what are you watching? He's like, oh, you've got to see this show. It's hilarious. He's like, well, it's a kid's show. It's puppets. He's like, no, 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 no. That, it just looks like that. But if you pay attention, the dialogue and the themes are thematically skewed toward, you know, adult viewers. And he sort of gives the camera a bit of a wink and a nod. Yeah. And so she gives it like a 10 seconds. And then she's like, they're puppets. It's for kids. And then she just walks out. <laughs> And that, I'm sure, was what a lot of people's attitudes were toward that show. I, I know that that was what a lot of people's attitudes were toward The Simpsons. Mm. So, yeah, I think it follows that certainly anything... Oh, it's got the Joker in it. That's from that kid show I used to watch. So, no, I'm not going to give it the time of day. Yeah, It's odd how we can cherry-pick, though, isn't it? Or how people can cherry-pick and say, uh, it, it's comics that are the problem, it's comics that are ridiculous. Uh, and they won't question something like sport or football. Something which children engage in. Something mm. which has the same feverish, nerdy, uh, collecting kind of craze that surrounds it. You remember football stickers when you were a kid? People actually dress up like football players as well. Like, you know, mm. they will put on a football shirt with the person's name on the back. That's the same as somebody dressing up as Batman. I don't care how you spin it. I think, well, I think the extremes can be equatable, certainly. Yeah. I think that, as I was saying before, like someone who is a grown man whose entire house is filled with cartoon and comic memorabilia, and someone whose entire house is filled with football posters and clothes and all, all of the crap you get for that, mm. I do think that that is an equatable state of arrested development. Mm. Whereas I think most people, there is an element of moderation. Everything that I have collected, I've never collected every single thing get away i'm not having that off you what's the uh, what's the album called then <laughs> well you forget of course well music is a whole different ball game because music appreciates <laughs> in value you're referring to a band that i have an awful lot of their discography and obscurities and rarities <laughs> and things the band eventually got back together thus significantly making these a lot more expensive and so i was able to turn quite a significant profit on that 
during the sort of hub of their reformation activity. That was always considered an investment. There's a pragmatism to that. One of the people I know who actually is the closest to what I just described about like comics and toys and things like that. And I was almost worried about him for a while because like at any given moment, there is a wall full of like toys and shit that he has in one of his rooms. Mm. Um, and you know, he's, he's getting on, he's in his thirties. He, um, becoming a responsible adult. He's becoming a homeowner. He's probably going to start a family soon. But I was talking to his, um, girlfriend about it because she had in the past voiced similar concerns. And then she explained, you know, that he actually does the same thing. He has an eye for like what collectibles will become like really sought after and he'll treat them like investments. And so he always has a whole bunch of like cartoony stuff up, but it's like a rotation Mm. and he ends up making quite a lot of money each year from, you know, isolating which things will, you know, have been, the thing that was really limited edition and so lots of people missed out so then they will pay you know a premium for the product that he paid something a lot more reasonable for at the time all right okay fair enough so you know i think that that attitude when it's married with that kind of pragmatism and sort of forward thinking Mm. that is a healthier attitude than just kind of like stacking a room full of posters and things again also when i have like you know a whole bunch of copies of a record or things like that i don't then like put them all on the wall no if like i if there was a fire knock word or something that kind of wiped out all this shit i have i wouldn't have like an emotional breakdown you know what i mean like i'd, I'd file for the insurance i'd get some money and i'd move on i wouldn't be like bereft it'd be like when your uh, hard drive crashes and you need a new one but you couldn't be bothered clearing your desktop anyway so it's just did it for you just did it for yeah. you clean slate <laughs> I've had a, I've had that once. It was a I lost some things from like assets for projects, those personal projects, and a part of me was like, you know, those weren't actually going anywhere anyway. Mm. So use it as a clean slate opportunity and 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 start a whole bunch of other things. That can be a positive, certainly a bit of a cleanse because I like I'm the type of person who really will stockpile personal projects and ongoing things, and about a third of them will get done. Which, but because I do so many, that actually amounts to quite a lot of shit that I put out. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's like graphic novels or like, you know, little records on Bandcamp or, you know, animated short films, you know, eventually, you know, a certain percentage of it will get done. But for everything that I put out, it's like successfully that I've been able to profit from, there's usually two or three other things that had to die on the vine while I was doing that, you know? You can't, I, I, I tend to. You have to have at least one or two things ticking over you in your mind, I, yeah. I, just to sort of remain. Because you're, you're, when you're working on something, you want to be working on the next thing, and that's where the other ideas kind of uh, develop and you know kind of build themselves up in your mind as you're working on the other stuff. Definitely, and in a way, certain th- things can be prioritized, and that's not sort of in your control. Like you'll have an idea of okay, what's the most important thing that I'm doing, and then you'll actually be able to gauge from like the audience response. I mean, I consider the podcast in a lot of respects a, a passion project uh, and a lot of squiggly stuff, as I'm sure you do. And I think that certainly knowing that it's engaging a larger group of people, that we have an audience, that we have an inbuilt sort of listenership, that definitely uh, determines how motivated 
we are to put our time and energy into it. That's a massive motivation. Whereas when you're like just sort of making a, a film, you don't actually know what the response is going to be until it's done and it's out there. Mm. And sometimes things can surprise you. Like I, I didn't think that the most recent film I did, because I just kind of like threw it together in a couple of weeks, I didn't think people would really get it. And initially I, that seemed to be the case. And then suddenly, as with all the other films, it hit a certain point and then it started to gain momentum. And now I'm a lot more motivated knowing that there is an interest in it to then submit it to more festivals to try and sell it more, to try and, you know, get it out there more. So when you become someone like a Don Hertzfeld or who's someone who recently crowdfunded, well, I guess Charlie Kaufman and uh, Anomalisa, (laughs) knew that there was an inbuilt fan base there, knew that there was potential interest and was able to kind of harness that and produce a really cracking piece of work. Then you have, you know, stuff like cans without labels. Which, <laughs> oh, you don't, you we, don't rather. Yeah. When did we talk about that? Like four years ago? Yeah. You know, yeah when yeah. we had him on. So, you know, and he, he knows that there's a demand and an interest because if you look at the Kickstarter comment pages, you know, people are being quite vocal about like, by the way, you know, you did say you were going to make a cartoon, but I, I note that he's going to be at Annecy this year, John Cruz for Lucy. So, you know, perhaps there'll be an update at any rate. So yeah, Mr. Rigby. Not a fan of uh, comics, and presumably by association, things like animation and other things that are... I imagine he wouldn't enjoy the company of a brony no. of an evening. No, no, no. They probably wouldn't have much to say to one another. Probably, you know, Mr. Rigby more at home picking up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream. Yeah. So, Mr. Rigby, as we've discussed, nerds are everywhere in all forms, so... Uh... You're just going to have to get over it. I think a little dash of nerd makes the world interesting. Hmm. I think we all have that little bit of it in us. You know, it's, it's how much we let in. I remember when I first sort of went to uni, I, I really stamped down the nerd within. It was very important, I think, to cultivate an entirely different affected persona. And then by the time I went to university, I, I chilled out a lot. And I remember when I first walked into a forbidden planet. I imagine it's like when someone who's been in the closet their whole life goes to uni and for the first time just walks into that gay bar and it's like <laughs> Fuck it, this is who i am that was me when i'm like oh my god they have a star bug <laughs> i didn't even think you could buy these you know and also i think that you know creativity and nerddom there they make good bedfellows mm. so certainly um that we wouldn't have any podcast guest so it's been it's been beneficial to us yeah it's done us all right speaking of podcast guests we, uh, we have one. Nice segue. Yeah, I, I'm quite proud of it. <laughs> uh, you met with Felix Massey. I did, yes. Uh, director of such films as In the Air is Christopher Gray, a fine piece of work. Keith Reynolds Can't Make It Tonight, uh, The Surprise Demise of Francis Cooper's Mother. And uh, did you ever see the old stuff he did on YouTube, the stick death stuff? Yeah, yeah, we talked about the stick deaths. It's, uh, it's good it's, stuff. It's great, isn't it? The whole... I don't, I don't know what it is, because there was a time when most people were doing things like that. I remember when I was at school, there was a... Um, we had the old BBC computers, and you could, you could um, take a kind of section of the screen, and that would... You'd be able to animate um, that section of the screen, like a screen grab. And we used to make loads of stick men and stick deaths, and this is in, like, 1998 or something like that, so years ago. Um... So I think it's one of the first things you do, but to see somebody like Felix 
take it not as a real kind of like hammered down style, but to understand the uh, what you get out of a stick figure as opposed to what you get out of a well-defined, well, a character which you can see the pores of and take it and push it. And, you know, we watch these films with stick figures in. And I think we can apply a little bit of ourselves to it because there's such a basic template. And in, and in, and in that respect, enjoy it a whole lot more. Well, I mean, when you have a good command of the principles of animation, as these videos demonstrated, that really does kind of like blast through the the simplicity of the design. You know, even uh, the Richard Williams lectures, a lot of the animation examples that are, are shown, I don't think they're stick figures, but they're very, very simple figures. Mm-hmm. But in terms of demonstrating weight and timing and all that kind of thing, it is sort of all you need in a way. And it's a bit like with stop motion, all you kind of need is a functional armature to teach yourself how to animate yeah. or to have an, you know, I've seen some quite impressive stop motion showreels. Some of them have gotten people jobs at, you know, major studios like Ardman where they've not had the resources to, you know, put together a, a really elaborate puppet, but they've had an armature a wire armature that they can move around in a way that shows that they know how to perform. They know how to make a character perform out of something inanimate. Well, it's, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but, a stop motion uh, to get yourself a job at, at a place like um, Pixar. It was uh, uh, Louis Cliquey, uh, uh, um, or Cliquet, I don't know. I'm, I'm not French, I'm afraid. Um, he directed that um, Edith Piaf um, animation, uh, L'Amour. Um, and it's the, the story of a relationship, and they're all, it's 2D, and they're all like throwing stuff at each other, and there's pianos dropping down. It's really fast paced. Absolutely wonderful film. It's the kind of film where you watch and the whole world uh, feels you get a real buzz out of it. It's a, it's a superb piece, and that's that's just a simple two D thing. And and he didn't really do an awful lot of CG in it, but because of the kind of maybe the vibrance of that shot, that got in the directing job on the last Asterix film. Hmm. So yeah, the, an understanding and then, as you say, a command of of, of animation. Uh, really sort of works going back to like Don Hertzfeld and people like that you know it's it's if you have the so much of like atmosphere of a film and things like that can be put across you know without necessarily having a huge detail and I guess in the air is Christopher Gray is such a great example of that because the detail is is really quite sparse certainly as far as the characters are concerned they're flat colors and, uh, you know, so no real sort of facial acting or anything like that to kind of help things along, which is something that I find I, I generally need if it comes to, even if it's just like something I can do with a blink or eyes or a mouth movement or something like that. Mm-hmm. I do find that 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 is a real help. So when you see something that has you know nothing of that, it's all down to the body performance and how the environment is composited to kind of carry across the tone. Uh, that's very, very impressive, I find. Absolutely agreed. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Peanuts in the era of Christopher Gray. Yeah, yeah. Like a, 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 a Susan darker, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, certainly the um, the ennui of childhood, the things that are not really a big deal, but like a, a such a huge deal, you know. The selfishness. Um, yeah. And I love the, the sort of doomed love story is kind of reminiscent of like, you know, Charlie Brown and the little red-headed girl. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Would you like to have seen Pigpen crushed to death by a boa constrictor? <laughs> it was the it was the b- who kept moving the football away from him. <laughs> she deserved to have her spine crushed. 
<laughs> yeah, this is this film also kind of like originated a sort of running joke with me and my girlfriend. Whenever like it looks like rain, we're like, "Bring in the lawn chairs. There's a storm coming." <laughs> it's a great sort of Americana line. Yeah, um, and Americana is something that he does so well. And, and watching this film, you wouldn't think that he was British. Just the sense of American family values mm-hmm. was very well done. Now, Felix is, uh, the last I heard of him, he was at Encounters uh, talking about the stuff he's doing at Nexus. Uh, he's doing this thing called Rain or Shine, which is part of the Google uh, Spotlight series. Yes, indeed. Uh, I was at Leeds last weekend for Easter, the um, Leeds Young Film Festival, uh, doing a, a squiggly quiz. But there was loads of um, loads of other things there, uh, workshops, etc. And there was... Um, a guy called Rob Martin there uh, from A Gear Learning, and he had a load of these um, Google Cardboard. Have you seen these, Ben? Have you got one of these Google Cardboard boxes? I've had a play with them. Yeah. Um, absolutely kind of superb. I've not, I've never really kind of been in the, the opportunity to have one thrust in my hand before, but um, I ran away with a few. Uh, and uh, they're absolutely fantastic. The, the ideas of, uh, uh, you know, it's basically it's it's what we were all promised when we were kids, isn't it, Ben? The idea of having a virtual reality helmet and be able to look around. But the ingenious thing about it is, you just slip your mobile phone in and you're away. Um, and so I've caught up with the Google Spotlight stories and um, you know the other kind of uh, music videos and and CG stuff. I know that people like Blue Zoo have been uh, engaging with it and doing some music videos uh, and the like. And it's really good stuff. Of course, like with everything any sort of major technological advancement, uh, they're also making porn for it. Well... I mean, I'm surprised it took as long as it did. Porn, I was, uh, I was actually... Porn is the thing that keeps... It sets the standard for the rest of entertainment. If you, if, <laughs> no, if you think about it, if you think about it, VHS, the reason that VHS won over Betamax was because all the uh, porn was made on VHS. The reason that Blu-ray um, beat... Uh, HDVD. It's because porn was made on it, and I have loads of VHSs and <laughs> Blu-rays here that attest to that. Ben, no, no. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, you can pretty much guarantee that as soon as people start making, you know, uh, porn on it, then then it's going to be fine. I hadn't realised that Blu-ray was such a market leader in porn. I'm no expert. Uh, I find the idea of buying porn very odd now like is it you still get like the top row of magazines and news agents that are all like covered up for the kiddies i guess mm. so i guess people still buy magazines yeah that's so weird it, i can't i can't actually look for something like innocent on google images without getting porn <laughs> you know what i mean like at one point i remember when i was doing um one of my earlier films it was about um it was a character that at one point needed to have like a university sports jacket on and I can I could sort of picture that in my head, like I kind of know where like the insignia goes. But just to be sure, I'll look up a visual reference. So I type in to Google Images "college jock." I would like to advise anyone listening to not do that because you're not going to get a bunch of sports jackets. That was a sobering day. Tube steak. That was another cold, uh, <laughs> cold glass of water in the face that Google Images threw at me. I just wanted to prepare something nice for my tea. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, with the abundance of it, and, you know, I, I maybe 
Sometimes, if I'm feeling particularly scurrilous, sometimes I'll seek out a television show before it's available to purchase on home media through a website. Monster. And uh, all of those websites that might direct you to where that particular episode of a TV show can be watched perfectly legally, I assume, uh, all of those websites, always the banners on the side, some there's something, you know? <laughs> Although sometimes it's like cartoons, which is even weirder. So this is what Marge and Quagmire would look like if they got together. Thanks, Internet. <laughs> For answering the question nobody asked, uh, rest assured at the, <laughs> the Leeds Young Film Festival, there was no porn or in any of these things. There were, that is good to there know. Was demonst- that they were go. demonstrating these uh, these fantastic films and uh, uh, tame abilities of the uh, of, of, of you know Google Cardboard and. Uh, of virtual reality and augmented reality and everything. And there's, there's quite a funny, uh, we, we were discussing, I said, well, how would you present this in a kind of a festival format? And he, he showed me um, a setup for a, I think it was a festival in Amsterdam, the first ever virtual reality festival. And it's just a room full of swivel chairs. <laughs> <laughs> that must be brilliant to watch. That must be just, just sit there and just watch people spinning round and looking up and down and, and you know. <laughs> it's like watching people at a silent disco. You know when you're at a silent disco and you take your headphones out and you're like, <laughs> oh God, yeah. I'm all dancing. But yeah, Rain or Shine looks like good fun. I'm assuming it's going to be with us relatively soon because uh, they were talking about it quite a few months ago, and it looked like it was nearly there. Mm-hmm. A very different approach to the type of storytelling. Because Google Spotlight are great, because they, they're not sort of, like, limited by, like, very specific parameters of what kind of story is being told. So you have Glenn Keane's film Duet, which is a, it's sort of worlds apart from what Felix has come up with, with uh, Rain or Shine. And Buggy Night as well, and, um, and Windy Day other kind of ways of, of showing this particular story. Buggy Night, uh, you're actually, from the point of view of a flashlight, scaring all these insects, which encourages a frog to come across, which is uh, quite cruel. And I think that um, Felix has gone for a, a similar thing with his uh, Nexus shot, um, Rain or Shine. Mm. I think you control the rain cloud above this little girl's head, <laughs> mm. which is really cruel. And it can, yeah, it can sort of affect how much you sort of ruin her day and the i think there's like a birthday party or something some other kids are having yeah or like people kids are having ice cream and like you can have the rain like melt all the ice cream i like it just being mean to kids well that's what he does in his other films yeah so i mean they get off pretty light compared to the kid in uh in the eras christopher gray <laughs> the design work in rain or shine is also quite different it's a guy called robin davy who mm. um is very very good so it's it's a little sort of removed from the sort of Felix Massey design style of his earlier films. But yeah, excellent stuff. Well, I, I think it's high time we actually heard from Felix himself. We're banging on about porn and God knows what, and we've got this interview to listen to. So let's, uh, how about we hear from him? Let's. In the Air is uh, Christopher Gray is, is a few years old now. Yeah. Uh, but it's always worth uh, revisiting films like yeah, that, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Can you tell us where the idea came from? Basically, the idea was about how when you uh, misjudge, I suppose, what uh, trying to get something. So it's sort of um, Christopher trying to get the girl story and then um, Barry trying to please his son and sort of misplaced 
affections, I guess, and how you try to do something, but um, it doesn't work out how you've planned kind of thing. So he's got all these ideas of like, um, uh, uh, like grand ideas and schemes of how something's going to play out and it doesn't quite happen. There's like um, that revolutionary road, the, uh, is it Richard Yates book or something? Uh, he he kind of does one of my favorite bits about that book's how he um, uh, sort of this guy's got all this good stuff, well this stuff happening, but it's not necessarily the good stuff that's happening to him that he's really happy about. It's about him imagining telling his wife at the end of the day and saying, "Oh, this has happened," and then she'll say this and I'll say this, and then when he actually tells her, it doesn't quite work out that way. And I found that really interesting that kind of you look forward to telling someone something more than the fact that it happens so it's sort of about uh sort of kind of nick that idea and then um, <laughs> yeah just sort of have it had it all go wrong for him and then all the stuff that's going on in the background like the, the, the um i've forgotten the names of my own characters now like johnny getting uh <laughs> cpr at the end like he's kind of oblivious to all that like all he cares about is is his own sort of heartbreak, but then there's still light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Yeah, so grand gestures falling flat, and yeah, uh, yeah. there's a there's a wonderful kind of, uh, I suppose the only way to describe it is selfishness to the kids there at mm. the end when they're not they're like you say oblivious to the yeah, fact yeah. that one of their friends <laughs> is getting um, CPI has been crushed by a pipe and everything. Um, fantastic. Um, could you take us back to how you got started in animation and tell us uh, where you kind of began? Very beginning. Um, it was, so back in school, I did like GIFs and stuff like that, like before they were cool, um, <laughs> to stick animation ones because then it was, uh, the file sizes had to be really small to, to run on like 56K modems and stuff like that. So that I just used Stickman and there was like a community of people who did it was called Stick Death, and uh, it was usually just sort of. Uh, you've probably seen one of them was like little kung fu guys like running around kicking each other, and and that was kind of like start. I don't know. That was like the start of it, but that was like what loads of people saw that and and did their own little animations. So I did a website called I Can't Color In, which was sort of themed around stick men in boxes, and like one of them was like it would flood up. One of them, it would start spinning faster and faster. One of them would like a, a, a blob would just appear and get bigger, and they were all quite like gruesome deaths of uh, stickmen. Um, but I enjoyed doing that; that was a lot of fun. And then uh, I moved on to doing flash animation, and then I sort of thought I'll go to university and do it. And then um, I did another. I just carried on doing stickmen in university. So I did Keith Reynolds can't make it tonight, which is sort of about a mango in, in like an office building uh, and then yeah I just I like the idea of uh, I have done like um, since then like commercial stuff with with uh, fully drawn characters like illustrated ones some that other people have done like illustrated for me but that's not, there's something about the stick men that I really like because they're really simple and when you keep them as distant as that uh, in a film then they sort of you can project whoever you want onto them you don't have to see their faces you can just assume what they're saying and there's something really cute about seeing them really small on the screen I think it's sort of uh, you know when you're sitting at a station and you watch people in the in the walking around with their suitcases and stuff like that it's really easy to see them as uh, like people because you can't 
they're just sort of in the distance and uh, if you see someone up close that you learn a lot more about them and it affects what you think about them I think but when you just keep them really anonymous like that you can kind of it's I think it's more it's kind of interesting to watch as a, for a change I think mm. excellent uh, has anyone here seen uh, Keith Reynolds uh, can't make it tonight no one person at the back yeah I expected <laughs> I thoroughly recommend you go and see it. Uh, it's available on, on it'll be available on your Vimeo channel. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Um, as with uh, Christopher Gray. Um, but uh, <laughs> you're talking there about seeing a crowd and and placing, um, you know, imagining what they're, you know, being ambiguous again with with mm -hmm. what their actual stories are, and not getting too close to them. And uh, it, it kind of strikes me that when it comes to Stickman and you, you're more like the kid with a magnifying glass and an anthill <laughs> doing all these stick figure deaths yeah, yeah. and anyone who has seen um, Keith Reynolds you want to tell us a little bit about Keith Reynolds the, the story the film yeah what, what it's about uh, so that one's sort of another I suppose that's another love story as well kind of uh, it's about a guy who goes into work and it starts that he's the the most senior junior business analyst in the building and he's been there for years and years and this is like promotion day and uh, he walks in expecting to have a promotion and he he makes a cup of coffee for someone who never who never accept, who never wants it but he makes someone anyway just in case that that will win her over or something and then he finds out that he hasn't got the uh, promotion but it's all uh, set in an office building in America like in the sort of 60s 70s office building and it's like cut away and you just see him moving up and down the building and the camera moves up and down and then uh, yeah it's sort of like another sort of uh, a load of like stupid stuff happens that ends up dragging uh, dead bodies up and down the, the stairwells and stuff like that you have to watch it. So. <laughs> I think the word "dead bodies" might have got the audience. Uh, <laughs> oh, dead bodies! Well, like, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to watch, you have to watch that now. Um, <laughs> excellent. There, uh, with with Keith Reynolds, with uh, Christopher Gray, there's a, 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 a kind of a maybe a, a love of Americana that you've got <laughs> there. Can you explain that? Because you you're not from America. No, no. <laughs> I just got an American accent. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's because. The answer I always give to this one's because you know when I went to school anyway, if you didn't go to do a presentation or something, you it's really embarrassing to like stand up on the stage and and, and say something, or in if you were going to do your uh, school disco or le like prom or whatever you would call it there. Uh, you just go on your own and that's like perfectly acceptable if someone if someone knew that you like someone then that's like you had to hide that um but in america it's like you you're supposed to like be really great at presenting stuff you're supposed to be supposed to ask stacy to prom or whatever and then like uh and then if you go on your own that's more embarrassing so i think i really like uh how outgoing they are and how they pr present things and and like me and my friend in university joe did the music for that actually we always had a joke where if anything was like we started getting cheesy talking about something emotional we'd always sort of descend into an american accent just because it sort of fit and it was less embarrassing for us to talk about it that way um and so yeah i guess there's like a really funny youtube video where there's probably loads of them but there's one of um this kid learning how to ride his bike for the first time and I think he's just he's just ridden it a little bit and then uh, his his dad's there have you got any words for 
for any of the other kids who are trying to learn to ride their bikes. And he stands next to this like flagpole, and he's like, uh, "You can do it if you believe in yourself." And like, <laughs> he's just like, he must be about like five or six, and he's already sort of president of the United States. Like, like it's ridiculous. And like, I'll never have that kind of charisma in my <laughs> in my voice. So I think it's that kind of. Uh, yeah, the way that they can project that is, is, is it sort of suits itself to film because you don't have to like go and then eventually I plucked up the courage to talk to them. It's just out there straight away. It's good. Yeah. This is like a, a, a cultural kind of expectation. Yeah, uh, I yeah. suppose that's another way of, of, of calling it the, the way they are in America. Mm, yeah, yeah. But you, you, you apply a, a very, um, I'd say very English, very British sense of humour to that. <laughs> you do take that and you do deconstruct it very, you know, wonderfully by adding the... Uh, do you, de you deconstruct it wonderfully with, uh, with the way that the characters interact with one oh, another right. and <laughs> what's important, what's not important. And we, when we view it from our... I'm sure the audience may, may agree when we view it from our point of view it's it, it works in a, in a different way there are, there, are, there are ways that um, in American comedies and British comedies mm. there are certain nuances and I think that's very British in the way that it's yeah because they sometimes across. port them over and they don't work and then they yeah 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 how how, um, how did you approach the, the, the comedy, uh, in, comedy when you come to writing I don't really know. I always sort of like, I love the idea of the narrator. I like having the cheesy narration and stuff um, and kind of over the top uh, talking. Like, I really like the line about like, uh, no amount of lemon t lemonade could cool his desire and, and, and just sort of trying to make the make horrible things like sound poetical, like, the, like um, Johnny getting literally crushed and then uh, Christopher coming to the crushing realization. Like I like how you can make things kind of sound nice, and uh, but then apply it to something else that sounds funny. Um, and then I guess the kids. I like sort of how serious they were about doing their plan, and then it's, maybe it's the um, the adults that are more um, emotional when you kind of expect it to be the other way the other way around perhaps because they're they're supposed to be more restrained but um i think that worked quite well because the voices are it's not the best sound quality but it's because it's um just recorded in in carolyn is the one who did the mum she it was her uh walk-in wardrobe in right in brooklyn so it was all of it was sort of surrounded by her bras recording all the voices and all the other voices are um andy who's the narrator it's his students because he used to treat, teach at pratt so it kind of worked out all right because they're not like the best actors or anything i know that but um carolyn sort of does drama so she's a bit more full-on so it worked quite well <laughs> and she voiced she did the t the two female uh, adults. Right. Okay. So the the the, the moms. Stacy's mum. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Um, so you you had to you, you sourced real Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so as well as um, creating these films, uh, you work for Nexus as well. Yeah. Tell us about the working relationship that you do have with Nexus. They take on directors. Uh, yeah. Uh, many different vari uh, yeah, varied, varied styles and yeah. things and use them to create commercials and things. Can you tell us a little bit about how Nexus works and how you work within Nexus? Um, so I met Chris and Charlotte who were the, the owners of Nexus and when I went to Sundance with Keith Reynolds and they had a film this way up so 
we sort of hang out a bit there and they said just come visit if ever I was in London so I went there a while ago I think it was back in 2009 and then just sort of kept in touch and then eventually moved to London and uh, just got work there because I guess they knew who I was then we do commercials for all sorts of things they've done like uh, Smith and Folks work there who do like they're probably the ones that you might have seen like Hotels.com and Coca-Cola adverts and all sorts but they're also really interested in doing um, like uh, it's like storytelling stuff so uh, I know Smith and Folks are trying to do like the, go down the features route and things like that because they got like Oscar nominated and stuff yeah before. this way up wasn't it yeah really? yeah and um and uh, we're doing, uh, there's a few people doing things for like Disney and Amazon Prime uh, TV series and like, like for kids and things. So we're always trying to like push into doing that. And um, yeah, I do a lot of animation for commercials with them. And then more recently we've been working with um, Google on um, a Google Spotlight film, which is sort of a, it's hard to explain it, but it's, you, it's a, 360 film so you watch it on your phone and it, you can look around anywhere you want um, uh, there's Glenn Keane's done one with them which was called Duet it's a Disney animator who animated um, Little The Little Mermaid yeah. and Beauty and the Beast so it's cool to be doing something that he, that he was working on and um, yeah we, we went to San Diego in the summer I got to meet him that was really cool um, but that's coming out in uh, June, I think. I think it's coming out in Annecy, so that would be cool to show it there. Um, what can you tell us about that project? Huh? Can you tell us much about the story? Yeah, or? So it's, it's called Rain or Shine, and it's about a, it's a typical story of, um, it's a bit different to these, but it's a, it's a, it's just a, for kids, like a little girl uh, gets followed by a rain cloud whenever she puts her sunglasses on and sort of becomes a <laughs> social outcast, so it's kind of a, a, a um, sort of a tried and tested uh, old rain cloud story but hopefully like up to date uh, sort of version of it we've got Robin Davey who's used to work with Ardman did the animate uh, the the designs and then it's the f it's in CG this time so it's the first CG project I've done so it's quite exciting wow how, how have you found working within that environment because um traditionally animation is done on um say 24 frames a second 25 frames a second mm. Whereas uh, when we um, spoke to Glenn Keane on the site, he said he had to work at 60 frames a second, 64 frames a second. It's refreshes at 60, right? but it's still, we work in 30 frames a second, so okay. the movement of the camera is 60, but all the characters are still like pretty much traditional stuff right and do you find yourself having to well you obviously have to animate the entire thing but is it a yeah. different planning process to plan this yeah. almost bubble that the, the action takes place in basically did like a giant chart we called it the um, the football chart lead chart where basically you know when you have uh, what's the thing was in Manchester Manchester United Manchester City and then you'd have the home and away versions of it but we'd have like a golden thread so the way that the technology works is I'd so if it was a film about you I'd look at you and it sounds very I, boring <laughs> it knew I was looking at you but if I look away 
then it will know that I'm looking there, so you'll stop, but something might go on here, just because you can. Then when I look back, it sort of presses your play button again, and you play again. Okay. But it's it's complicated, because you have to keep start stopping and not leave it, so that if I creep in, you're sort of frozen in motion halfway through something. So there's a lot of things to consider with that, it and it's it, hopefully if you watch it, you won't see all of the hard work that went into that, and then, but you'd, if you watch it again, you might like look away at different points and see different things. So, yeah, that was the most complicated part of it, I think, because mm. it, it, the timing is all changed, and there's obviously no, there's no narration or it's a silent film kind of thing. So, that's a change for me as well. Mm. Excellent. Um, do we have any questions uh, from the audience about? Um, oh, there we go. Obviously, animation has to be pre-planned. But while you're making it, do you actually adapt? the various stages or do you just keep to the plan and, and not alter anything while you're making it? Sorry, um, animation has to be planned in various stages. Do you stick to the plan or do you alter as you go along? Um, so generally I get the script down and then I'll cut, I'll record the audio and then or I might do a scratch test with some like uh, anybody's voices and then uh, We'll put it all together in a big file so you can sort of listen to it through and see how, how that works. And then you do like rough drawings to go along with it um, and then maybe cut sections out. But the idea is you want to do as little animation as possible, obviously, because it takes so long to do. So, uh, yeah, I, there's not much. Do you mean adaptation in an individual project? Like as from start to finish? Yeah. So you kind of have to just sort of uh, yeah just sort of go for it and then just by the time I finished something I usually want to change something about the whole thing or the way I've done it but then you kind of want to save that for the next project because you can always go back and tinker it all the, all the time again I think one of the things I did do on that was make their heads a bit bigger for the kids to make them a bit cuter but that's about the only change I did for There's the whole thing no changes to the story or, or um, um, I think I cut some parts out because generally when I write the stories I always put more in so that it makes sense in my head that I've covered everything but then I think you can actually take a lot of it out and let people fill the gaps in themselves so you don't have to explain everything and mm. yeah I think yeah I think it changed a little bit but it's usually cuts to it rather than adding more stuff in mostly because by the time you're making it you're like I don't want to make it any longer <laughs> excellent um, any more questions Hi, uh, you've touched upon the technical aspect of working with uh, Google Spotlight but yeah. how does it impact on the storytelling obviously you don't oh they're looking around everywhere yeah. yeah that's an interesting thing because um, they were very clear that they wanted it to be not a game and they wanted it to be a story uh, so, so like a film they're like very keen on making it spot like stories not any or VR or anything like that um, so <coughs> it, it's tricky because a lot of the development of it they'd say so what happens if I look away here uh, and the nature of it is if something if it's about like Steve then I look over at you and you're more interesting then I don't want to look at Steve anymore so the 
<laughs> no offence. No, no offence taken. So you kind of had to have like little bits happening off screen that are kind of uh, enhancing the environment or the world just to make it a bit more immersive rather than adding another thread to the story because otherwise you could just go off on anything and once they start looking at you then you, your thread has to start at the beginning rather than and then abandon that and then you're like oh why was I looking at that so some of them are actually Jan Pinkova is the guy who's the, what, the one of the producers at Google he's he did Jerry's Game and, and, and was one of the originals Retzel Ratatouille his one is um, called Windy Day is about a mouse trying to catch a hat and it sort of floats all around it's like blowing in the wind and things and then uh, if you actually look away there's not much to see it's more about just the fun of feeling like you're doing you're following something so our one is the the basic idea is the cloud rains on her and she moves out the way and then the cloud doesn't follow until you look to follow her so it's almost like you're causing her the misery and then by the end it's sort of uh, it, you sort of start to feel a bit bad or hopefully you'll feel bad about watching her so we try to sort of be is it meta we try to be a bit meta about it like make it worth worth more than just being a sort of uh, uh, like um uh, I've forgotten the word. When yeah, like something where that is kind of pointless. It's just a, a fancy thing to 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 try out. So yeah, we tried. Uh, hopefully it works. But good question. <laughs> good answer. It's a uh, it's an interesting part of the the audience is no longer um, just a, a passive viewer. They become hmm. a, a part of the actual experience. Yeah, if you're yeah. saying you're trying to make them feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a quite a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Any more questions? On the back there. Uh, I'm afraid I got lost in the 30 frames, 60 frames per second bit. I don't know if you go into a little more detail about that. Okay. So, if you imagine it's a uh, the 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 film is a camera, so your phone is a camera, and you're looking around a, a 3D environment what you're seeing on the screen is playing at 60 frames a second so if I just look across and this was a still image then I would see a 60 frames a second smooth uh, wipe across the picture but the actual characters within the scene are playing at 30 frames a second so it feels smoother to look around but the actual animation is still a traditional like 30 uh, frames. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it's, it's complicated to explain, but anyway, yeah, another question. Hi, yeah. Um, my name's Amy. Um, Hi. I was just wondering, what is um, obviously your style is two D, um, with the film that we've seen today. Um, do you use any other? Have you ever thought about using any other form of animation, just out of curiosity, or do you just two D kind of get across your styles better, like stop motion or anything like that? So she's so she's just asked, um, is is two D the style that you're more comfortable with that you're gonna stick with or have you decided or would you ever try three D okay. or stop motion or anything like that? Sorry, I've got bad ears on <laughs> sorry. Um I like two D because it's manageable, like with three D things you need to have like people who do shading and lighting and modelling and rigging and all sorts of things. The same with um 
stop motion. There's all sorts of people that do lighting and like uh, the model making in the first place. And I uh, like 2D. I find much more manageable. I like how you can watch it back as you you can draw two frames and flip between them. You can't do that with stop motion, and you can plan out scenes and move things about. I think stop motion I find quite scary that y you you photograph it and then you can't move it after at all. You have to redo it again if you want to change something slightly different. And then yeah, I do like sort of the technical side of it, but uh, CG is is sort of a big like a beast thing that I I don't think I can uh, I could do as as well as I could sort of do a simplistic thing on my own. Particularly that one I animated all by myself. So it's like the, the simpler I can make it, the 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 younger I stay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You mentioned the Amnesty Film Festival, and of course they had Manchester Animation Festival hosted here last year. Are there any other animation festivals that you would recommend? What kind of? Would you recommend any other animation festivals or film festivals for filmmakers who want to get their films? Uh, Encounters is really good in Bristol. Uh, Lille is really good. Um, I suppose some of the bigger ones like uh, Chicago's like a really really good one and if you can go Sundance is like just amazing because it's just like you just see so many films that that then you like that trickle out into like um, distribution in the next few years and you like really feel like you're seeing special stuff there. Uh, Edinburgh's good. Um, yeah and like any there's like a few in London like uh, there's London International Animation Festival and then just London Film Festival that that happen all throughout the the year and it's just sort of a good um experience cause especially when they're so like full there as well like you try and book tickets to like uh like a popular director's film there they're really hard to get hold of and then but when when you're in a packed cinema watching a, a, like a, the premiere of a film, it's really exciting. So that kind of adds to like the fun of it. But I definitely recommend um, Annecy. That's such a a nice one to go to, and everyone's so enthusiastic. And I think like uh, uh, in in uh, Lille, they have um, a, a a film night that is. It sounds horrible to me, but they love it. They start it at uh, like seven at night, and then they they play it all the way to like nine in the morning or something, and they just sit there with pizza and watch like l an endless like stream of films, and it's it's I thought like it sounds like such a niche thing to go, but it's like a huge theatre filled with people, and they all stay, and just it's so sort of popular over there. It's amazing, like. So that's, it's, it's just good to see and like see people enjoy it. That's like one of the nicest things about the festival. So it's good to to go to them. There's always a nice community aspect at most festivals, and yeah, yeah. you see similar people there and and everything. I like the sound of the endless stream of films, but I know there's <laughs> an endless stream of pizza to go with it as well. That would be, that would be ideal. <laughs> we any more questions? Oh, everyone's everyone's all questioned out. Thank you very much for asking those questions, though. You're also a uh, book illustrator. Tell us a little bit about uh, Terry Perkins. Again, all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after that one, uh, a, a woman called Jenny Broom from uh, 
Frances Lincoln said, have I got any like book children's book ideas? Because she thought, it, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I've been working on like some children's books. So I've done Terry Perkins and his Upside Down Frown about a boy whose words come out upside down. Uh, so they turn him on his head so that people can understand what he says, but then obviously he can't walk anywhere. Uh, and then I've got another one that's coming out this summer called um, George Pierce and his huge massive ears about a boy who's got huge ears obviously and uh, he can hear everything but he also uh, means he listens to everything everybody says as well so then he can't he can't figure out what what he should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing because everyone's got conflicting opinions so it's all about sort of learning to to listen to yourself and stuff so they've been really fun actually because children's books is like 30 or 16 spreads or 32 pages so you're really limited to a number of the amount that you can say in and i've just done it rhyming couplets throughout mm. the whole thing so it's really really simple but it's kind of eye-opening to how succinct you can make something and um uh, yeah, I just how simply you can tell a story like you don't need music, you don't need anything. So that that's quite refreshing to do and and fun. So I want to try and keep doing them, but I do kind of miss um, the sort of cinematic bits as well. So I keep doing shorts. Yeah, George Pearson is quite a, a common name. George Pearson is that what you said? Is that what you said? George Pearson is great big massive ears. Yeah, huge massive ears. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel sorry for all the George Pearson stars. <laughs> uh, I always worry about that. I had like because I always put names in in my films, and one of them I always think, oh, one day it's going to be like a cool one, like Dr. Harold Shipman or something like that. <laughs> and, but one time I haven't been that bad. The worst I've had is there's a Christopher Gray. Yeah. So almost from uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and. Uh, Terry Perkins from the Upside Down Boy is uh, one of the Hatton Garden robbers. Right. Yeah, so that's quite a cool one. That's <laughs> Are you kind of foretelling animations? <laughs> that took a dark turn. That was <laughs> excellent. Do we have any more questions? One more right at the front here. So if we just uh, wait for the microphone so if we can hear that'd be great. It's the last question, then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I was just. I was just interested in what filmmakers you uh, you know inspire you, uh, either animators or you know short filmmakers or um, you know kind of feature filmmakers who who kind of got you excited about films when you were younger. I really like um, well Wallace and Gromit was the thing that got me into it. So Nick Park, uh, then I guess at university I was really lucky to have as I went to Newport in Wales. So I went I had um, Matthew Walker, who did. Um, a film called Astronauts and John and Karen they're really um, they're, they've got like scripts of speech in them and things so uh, that was quite a rare thing to happen in, in, in graduate animation because people generally like to do things that they can just don't have to worry about writing a, a, a traditional script and then and getting them so that was quite it was good that he'd done that because that was sort of opened my eyes to that you could do a sort of uh, a more like dialogue based um, film so that was definitely a big inspiration then Tom and Dan who did the uh, a film called TOM and, and Tito they won at Annecy and so did Matt actually uh, so that was just sort of cool to, to know that um, things had a life outside of the university so those were big big influences back then I think and then more recently now I really like um, uh, Jeremy Clapham 
who did a film called Schizane about a man who's uh, 70 centimetres besides himself or something. So sort of a bit about schizophrenia, but also because it's quite funny and interesting as well. Um, uh, I work with a lot of people at Nexus who are like uh, really uh, just sort of inspiring, just like Johnny Kelly and I don't know if you know him, he did like a big Chipotle advert, but um, no, they're just sort of like sort of people who I know and I think that quite a lot of them are friends that I just think, oh, it's cool that you're doing this and it sort of inspires you to do it. And then I guess directors in the world are like Coen Brothers, I really like them. Um, John Hughes films. <laughs> uh, is that Alexander Payne did Election? I don't know. I, don't know. I, I really like him. Yeah, like uh, American uh, directors. But I always read that um, like the Coen Brothers are inspired by European uh, cinema, so they always find it funny that people are inspired by them back. <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah, just sort of Americana stuff is is good. This is the very obvious John yeah. Hughes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I should have seen that one a mile off. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, well, thank you all very much for uh, coming down to support uh, international animated shorts. Uh, this is not a cartoon will return to home in the future so the next time you see it advertised it will be a brand new program uh, of new short films and a new guest but for now um, where would people be able to find um, your work online? Uh, felixmassey.co.uk or nexusproductions.com Are you on Twitter? Yes, that's Felix Massey as well. <laughs> Excellent. There's not many Felix Masses around. No. <laughs> um, if you'd like to give a, a, a huge round of applause to uh, guest Felix Massey. So that was Felix Massey talking to me at uh, This Is Not a Cartoon, uh, Squiggly's uh, screening of uh, international animated short films. That was a, uh, took place at home in Manchester, but we do have uh, further screenings coming up and the northwest of England, and if you want to find out more about those, you can go to www.thisisnotacartoon.com. Yes, and to learn more, you can also read an interview we have with Felix, as well as see some of his films at squiggly.co.uk slash felix-massey, and his website is felixmassey.co.uk. Some news to wrap up on. Uh, for the benefit of our Swiss followers, the next stops for the short film nights tour that includes my latest film, Clemen Throw will be this Friday, April 8th, in Bern, playing in two venues, the Cinemat at 7pm and the Cinebubenberg at 8. And on that same night, it'll play in Baden-Wettingen at the Kino Orient at 7pm. And the following night, April 9th, the tour goes to Orhau at the Kino Center Schloss at 7pm and then a little break before it plays the following Friday, April 15th, in BLBN. 8pm at the Kino Rex and you can find out more info at kurtzfilmnacht.ch On that same Friday, if any Italians wish to make the trek to Cagliari for the Skepto International Film Festival, the film will be part of their Skeptiricon screening, satire grotesque and beyond alongside some excellent work by previous podcast guests Simon Cartwright and Job Yoris and Mariki to name a few and it looks like a really really fun selection, it'll play at 10.25pm April 15th at the Hostel, Marina and Auditorium Communal, respectively. You can visit Skepto.net for more information. That's Skepto with a K. 
So as always, be sure to check out squiggly.com for the latest features we have for you, amongst which we have a review of Zootropolis from Mr. Gareth Kavanagh, updates on upcoming features such as Lego Batman, The Secret Life of Pets, and Finding Dory, and I geek out over the recent remastered re-release of the classic LucasArts animated adventure game Day of the Tentacle. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell, Steve is at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson, and Squiggly itself is at Squiggly. You can also track us down on Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. So until next time, don't attempt any snake jumps and happy animating. Music.